So we are still on this wonderful journey of prayer. We got two more uh, weeks left on this before Christmas Eve. Are you, ex- are you guys excited about Christmas? Oh, really? Oh, let's shout for joy. Are you excited for Christmas? Yeah. Come on. I mean, I don't, we've, we, listen, I was like almost complete. I know others have been, are far more in advance when it comes to Christmas. Some, for some people, start in October. Mine starts Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving Day, right? But all that being said, I, I've been, you know, it's been nice just having family. And uh, to me, I think that's going to be the greatest gift. So we're going to be dealing with this issue of prayer and Jesus' prayer. And I talked to you guys about the when and the whom. Should, when should you pray? Whom should you pray? I think this answers this question quite, these two questions quite definitively. So we're going to be going through John 17 over the next uh, several weeks. But I want, want you to hear Jesus' prayer and how he prays for his people. Most people, when they read John 17, they have no, no clue when this happens. They just think it just happens. And in many cases, many preachers or teachers will avoid this particular prayer. In all the years that I've known Christ, I think I've heard the message, a message or a lesson taught on this one time in like my entire uh, life in Christendom. Why? Because this prayer wrecks all kinds of theology, but they miss the glory of this amazing prayer that Christ prays on behalf of his people. Okay? So just to give you some background, if you turn to chapter 13, okay? Chapter 13, Jesus has his triumphal entry, he comes in, and he he then, uh, throughout that week, comes to this point where it's time for Passover meal. As you guys know the story, they go out, they, they, find, um, they find all the things they need for the dinner. They sit down, they have dinner. Jesus does all these amazing things. He washes their feet, he breaks bread, he institutes the Lord's Supper there. All those things happen in John 13. And so j- during this time of John 13, this is the Lord's Supper, his last meal with his people. And so during this time, Jesus literally goes through and he gives them a new commandment. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. He then foretells Peter's denial. He then gives this amazing proclamation that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. He then gives the proclamation of the promise of the Holy Spirit that I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you without a shepherd. I will not leave you alone, but he promises the Holy Spirit. And he promises that, this, that the Holy Spirit will guide them in all truth. He also, he also proclaims in chapter 15, I am the true vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him. All of this is happening at the supper and on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine all of these truths are happening within a very few hours? 
And why does Jesus do this? Because he's been walking with them for three years. He's at the end of his ministry. His hour is about to come, and he wants to make sure that he gives them everything that he has taught them and clarifies these things to them so much to the point that they, they say that, that he, he prays for them and say, they know me because of the truth. He also lets them know that because the world hated him, they will hate us also. Chapter 16 comes, and it's, he's, he's letting them know that you're not alone. He also encourages them after he says that the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And he, he encourages, encourages them to stand in the truth. In verse 26 of chapter 15, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He then explains to them that the, that the Holy Spirit will guide them in all truth. And that he has overcome the world, so fear not. And that's where I want us to begin. Before we go there, I want you to know a few things. We talked about these last week, uh, last week for the last two weeks. But I want to reiterate uh, them, and then I'm going to give you a statement from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. Here it is. You ready? The doctrine of prayer is a means of grace offered according to the will of God, expressed in accordance with his word. Prayer is the language of the soul and opening of our hearts before God, John Calvin. Prayer reveals our heart. Prayer is about aligning ourselves with God's will, Matthew 26, 36. Prayer is this word, pros ukamai. Pros meaning to be near or come before, ukamai meaning to pray or to will. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson states it this way, praying is not an isolated spiritual exercise. We pray and we live are not two compartments. Are not two compartments. The truth of the matter is we live as we pray and we pray as we live. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. What Jesus does is he prepares his people. And what's interesting, I want you to imagine this. He gets done eating and he and as he's walking with them and talking with them, he's teaching them these truths, he comes to the end of the lessons. He has nothing more to teach, nothing more to say to them. And on his journey, Jesus does something quite remarkable. Turn to 16, chapter 16, John 16, verse 25. So all the things that I've just mentioned to you, I'm divine and all those things. This is what he says. I have said these things to you in, in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. 
For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. In other words, what he's saying is, one day, you won't need, you're not going to need to come to me here on earth. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. What? You mean three years and just all of a sudden you had a V8? I understand everything you're saying to me. Look, look, at what, look what they say to him. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe, what, believe that you came from God. Now, three years after watching him do all these miracles, now you know because of what Jesus said to you. Interesting. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Like now? You believe now? Based on what I just said to you, we had dinner, broke bread, told you I'm the vine, you're the branches, all these things. I say I'm not going to be speaking to you in figurative language, in like this, in this type of simple speech. And now you're turning around going, now I believe you. Interesting. But look what Jesus says. Behold, verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed has come, when you will be scattered, each to, his, each to his own hometown, to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you remember previously... In chapter 15, they've hated, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So Jesus, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not going to be talking to you in figures of speech anymore, in parables. I'm going to talk right up plainly to you. I'm going away. And it's interesting that Jesus says that you guys are all going to run and you're going to go to a home, going to go home. And you're going to leave me alone. Because if you remember previously before this statement, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. You notice this time, Peter doesn't argue. Because now Jesus says, all of you are going to leave me. I'll be left alone. Look what else it says in the end of chapter 16. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The world is full of suffering. You cannot avoid it. It's part of the deal. So find joy in your suffering. Think about that. Jesus was joyful to suffer for you. Why would we not be joyful to suffer for him? The scripture says that the father counted it joy to destroy his son. So understanding all that, 
as Jesus is walking and having conversation with his disciples, he stops. Just stops walking. Look what it says. And when Jesus has spoken these words, what words? 13 to 17. When Jesus had told him all these things from the supper till this moment, look what he says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. My work is finished, is what he's saying. This is it. My purpose of coming is here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, what's interesting about this word glorify, many would think, you know, hey, make him, make him amazing. No, it's, it's, it's more intimate than that. This glorify, this word glorify here, it's doxadzo. Doxadzo. This word doxadzo means to make renowned or to render illustrious. Now, there are many churches today who are always talking about making Jesus famous. We've got to make him renowned. Jesus doesn't need your help to be famous. He is already the most famous person to ever live. He, act, he was famous before he even created anything. His creation will proclaim him if his people don't. Jesus doesn't need anyone to make him renowned. He already is. So this word here, to clarify, means to cause the dignity or worth of some person or thing to become manifest or acknowledged. Think about glory from that perspective. In other words, Jesus is saying... Father, the hour has come for me, your son, to be manifest and acknowledged as the worthy one. In that your son may manifest and acknowledge you. So think about that. When Jesus went to the cross, who is he acknowledging and manifesting that he is the one who has dignity and worth, his father. And the father was pointing to the son, saying, no, he has dignity and worth. And the Holy Spirit points to the son, he has dignity and worth, he is the worthy one. Revelation tells you who the worthy one is. So when we think of glory, it's recognizing that the creation is not glorified because of itself, the creation is glorified because Christ is made manifest or acknowledged as the God of its creation. So I make manifest and acknowledge the worth and dignity of my King and my Savior. That's what glory means. Jesus prays for the glorification of Him and the Father. I'm gonna, I want you to understand, pray that God will glorify and be glorified in your life so that he is manifest and acknowledged in your life as the king of your life. Verse 2, since you have been, since you have been given authority 
since you have given him, meaning Jesus talking about himself, since you, Father, have given me, given him authority over all flesh. You hear that? Who's in charge of all flesh? Who is the one in authority of all flesh? Kind of puts a monkey wrench in a whole bunch of stuff, doesn't it? If he's in, in authority, has authority over all flesh, that means Satan doesn't. If he has authority over all flesh, it means he's the one in control. He's sovereign. We aren't. If he has authority over all flesh, then he determines who he has mercy on and who he's compassionate to. As a matter of fact, he clarifies this. He has authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you, Father, you have given him. Ouch. Now you know why. People don't teach this. Because this whole prayer is about the sovereignty of God. It's all about sovereign grace. This puts a major monkey wrench into all kinds of issues. As a matter of fact, there's a gentleman on YouTube, you know, named Dr. Layton. And he uses John 17 and he calls it the un-Calvinism of John 17. Really? Have you even gotten to verse 2 yet? How do you explain that away? If he has all authority over all flesh, and he is the one who gives eternal life to whom the Father has given him, that implies that the Father, that we belong to the Father before the foundation of the world. Isn't that what the scripture says? That your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the creation of all things? And if that's true, Jesus continues to clarify what eternal life is. So what is eternal life? Many would say eternal life is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. No, that is not eternal life. Eternal life is a person. Look what it says. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? This right here. And what is eternal life? That they know you, the only true Elohim, and Yahshua HaMashiach, whom you have sent. That's what he says in his language. That you are the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Who is eternal life? God is eternal life. You don't get eternal life. You are given eternal life. And you are given life because God is your life. That's what Jesus is saying. You, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. It's not a prayer. So what's he say? I have made manifest and acknowledged the dignity and worth of you, Father, on earth. 
That's what, the, what he says. I have glorified you on earth. He has obeyed the Father in every intimate detail. Not a dot or a tittle was forsaken in the work of Christ on the earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In other words, Jesus did it perfectly and without any mistakes. There is nothing undone. Verse 5, and now, Father, and he's saying, Abba, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, I have veiled myself of the glory that I had with you. And now, Father, I am coming back, going home to sit at the right hand of you, of, of the, of the right hand of God the Father, and this is what Jesus says, and this word glory means the most excellent state. Hear, hear it in these terms. And now, Father, glorify, make manifest and acknowledge the worth and the dignity of the Son in your own presence with the most exalted state that I had with you before the world existed. It's kind of amazing because here you see the God-man who was fully God and uh, truly God, like how uh, R.C. Sproul says, truly God and truly man. John MacArthur says, this, says it that way too. And you're, and you're seeing him come to the Father saying, bring me to my most exalted state. In other words, I'm going back to where I was. Why? Because God had to become man to die for his creation. As a matter of fact, let's clarify this in John 6, verse 37. John 6, turn there. Just so you see the context, you know it's important. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I thought I had freedom of choice. It says in, Ecclesi in Ecclesiastes, it says it this way. Love is as strong as death. When death calls you, you've got, you've got to come. Everyone, when it's time to die, will die. You can't say, no, it's not my choice right now. I'd really rather not do that. No. Love is as strong as death. When the love of God calls you, you got to come. Jesus says here, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son believes in him and should have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day except for one. And the reason why that one 
was lost is because prophecy must be fulfilled. And everybody knows who that is. Judas was brought in for the sole purpose to, dep- to um, betray the son. That being said, let's look at Jesus acknowledges the Father's will in prayer. God's will for his people is to have eternal life. So when you pray, are you praying for his will? Verse 6, 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name. You might even be able to use the word glorified your name. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Erkomai. You gave me people out of the world. He took you out of one place and placed you in another. Erkomai. My favorite word. One of my favorite words. I have made manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of, you, out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Whoa. Did we ever hear this? Have you ever really listened to a message based on John 17? Is this making you a little bit uncomfortable? Not for me. It gives me so much security. I, I, I enjoy lavishing in the amazing faithfulness and goodness of God to me. what it says in verse 17. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Wait. What are we learning here? What two doctrines is he proclaiming here? There's actually three. The doctrine of sovereign grace. God is completely sovereign over all things. Second, the doctrine of election. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who does the work. God is the one who brings us out of, out of the world and brings us into his family. It's God the Father. We were his before the foundation of the world, and we always were his. He was, we were then given to the Son because of the goodness of, of the Father and uh, the accomplishment of the work of Christ on the cross. What's the, what's the second? What's the third doctrine we're learning here? Eternal security. That whoever was the Father's has always been the Father's, and he loses none. So for all of our Arminian friends and charismatic friends who say you can lose your salvation, here's a clear doctrinal proof in the prayer of Jesus that you cannot lose your salvation if you are truly his child. Stand in the security of our amazing God knowing that in his lavishing love toward you and his promises that he keeps 
his word consistently all the time. Has nothing to do with you. That should make you feel happy. That you have no part in the process of what God does. That in God's goodness and kindness, he does the work. Because if I did any part, I think I'd wreck it. Matter of fact, I would because I'm a sinful man. I'm trying to avoid squirrels here. Here goes one. Pew. No, I love you. I right, sorry. So Jesus here affirms the promises and the will of the Father. We were his from all eternity and will always be his. Why? Because we are elected and are secure in Christ. What kind, of, what kind of comfort and surety do you have now? Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. You hear that? For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, meaning the words, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, they have believed that you sent me. Why? Do you remember what we read in the, at the end of chapter 16? Ah, oh, now you are speaking plainly and, using, and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I want you to hear this. Your experience means absolutely nothing to the reality of the work of, the, of, of Christ on the cross. Do we get the benefit of experiencing a loving kindness from God? Yes. But that is not the determining factor of your salvation. The determining factor of your salvation is solely on the truth of the word of God. They lived for three years experiencing the miracles of the hand of the living God in front of them. They actually actually were sent out to go out and cast out demons and heal the sick. And they, they still didn't understand and comprehend this reality of eternal life. Then all of a sudden, when, it's, when the work is done and he's about to be arrested and taken to the cross, all of a sudden, because now he's no longer talking in simple terms, he's just talking plainly to them, they go, now we believe. Isn't that interesting? It's not the experience that determines etern- your eternity. It's the reality of the word of God being active in your life. It's the word of God that brings you to salvation. It's the word of God, the gospel, by which the gift of faith comes and is planted in your life, by which the Holy Spirit makes alive this faith, the seed of faith, and it produces in you fruit, leading to eternal life. That's the point. If it's dependent on the experience, you lost the point. But if it's dependent upon the truth of the word of God, you can absolutely bank on it. That's what he means here. Does that mean that I, don't, that I didn't enjoy seeing God at work in my life as an experience? Yes, but that experience didn't determine my, my salvation. It's the word of God, the gospel, which determined my salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life through that word. That's exactly what happens here. As a matter of fact, to prove that out, turn to chapter 16, verse 13.
Jesus' prayer confirms the truth to, in his people. We are changed by the ministry of the, of the truth, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 13, chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I have said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The work of the Holy Spirit is the same work that Jesus did on behalf of the Father when he was on the earth. What's that? What did Jesus declare? Truth. Now I'm going to say this, and I hope it doesn't offend you. Well, sort of. The, char- the charismatics would say that the point of the reality of the truth of God is the experience of God in the working of miracles. That is not true. That's a lie. Because they want, to put, they want you to put your hope in man instead of putting your hope in the word of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus even clarifies this truth. To those on the left. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we do all these working, workings of miracles in your name? He's going to say, depart from me, you evildoers of iniquity. I never knew you. That doesn't mean you're not going to see crazy stuff happen. Because it's obvious that you do. Some of them is charlatans. All of it's fake. But what does he say to those on his right? Those who practice the word of God. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was sick, you cared for me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. When, we, when did we do it? When did we do that? When you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. That's the word of God active in the life of a believer. Because the reality of conversion is based on the full truth of the gospel. The word of God being living and active in the, in the life of an individual. So when Paul says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than the double-edged sword, divides soul and spirit, bone and marrow, judges the intents of the heart, it's literal. Why do you think people avoid this? Why do you think they don't teach the full counsel of it? Because they don't want the secrets of the heart to be revealed. John 17, verse 9, verse by verse. Which we've been doing this whole time. But it's pretty simple. He starts off with this. I am praying for them, meaning his people, specifically the disciples. And I am not praying for the world. Ouch. I don't know if the world would like that today. They would say, God is not tolerant. He's intolerant. Exactly. God is exclusively inclusive. What's that mean? He's exclusive to those who are his people and only inclusive to his people. 
He says, I am praying for them, but I'm not praying for the world. Ooh, world's in deep trouble. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Are yours, have always been yours, will always be yours, will continue to be yours. And they will never not be yours. That's what this means. Pretty clear. All mine are yours and all yours are mine. I know, gentlemen. I wish we could say that in our marriage. Because all mine is my wife's and all my wife's is my wife's. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. My wife's going, that's my boy. It's just a joke. I did that over in first service. Nobody laughed. <laughs> At least you guys get it. Millennials, I love it. Gen Zers. All right. Here we go. Look what he says at the end of that verse, verse 10. And I am glorified in them. In other words, I am made manifest and acknowledged with dignity and worth in their lives. And I am no longer in the world. In other words, I'm out. My days are done. But they are in the world. They're still going to be here. And I am coming to you. He said, I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus has been the shepherd of his sheep for three years. He has carefully guarded and protected them. And he is leaving. And what he's saying to the Father is, they don't have a shepherd anymore. You are their shepherd. The Holy Spirit is our shepherd. He does not leave us nor forsake us. He does not leave us alone. He says, I am leaving you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will send you a comforter, a helper, who will come for you and care for you and guide you in all truth. What you're seeing, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is the work of the shepherding of God in your life. The Holy Spirit is more than just some force. He's not a force at all. He's a person. He's not a genie who gives you everything you wish for. He is a person who is active and living in your life, shepherding your soul. He is your spiritual shepherd. And I am his under-shepherd along with all the other elders in our church. Isn't that interesting? Look what he says. Which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. What did Jesus do that proved that he was one with the Father? I only speak what my Father says I should speak. I only do the will of my Father. You want to know who, this whole issue of all these churches being ecumenical, that we should all be one. That's what he wants for us. That's what he says in his prayer. No, he wants you to be one according to his will and his word. I'm not going to be one with your church over there that's being pro this and pro that. Sorry, that's not a oneness because that's not according to the will and the word of God. You have an issue with that, take it up with Jesus. Not my problem. 
Jesus is one with the Father because he came and accomplished exactly what the Lord, what the Father said he should do and say and do what the Father said he should do. You want, one, you, you want to know what oneness is? Get in line with the will of God, his word. That's oneness. And the reason why churches have a hard time with that is because they don't want God to be the Lord, master, and God of their life. They want to determine. They want to be self-determined. Lastly, look what he says. And I will no longer be in the world, but they will be in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name that uh, which you have given me. And what is the name? Yeshua, the God who saves. We will pick up on verse 12 next week. While I, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. What you're going to see is Jesus is praying the doctrine of shepherding concerning his people. So you've seen the doctrine of, et- of election, the doctrine of sovereign grace, the doctrine of eternal security, the doctrine of the shepherding of God. And we'll pick up and, f- and finish off next week on the rest of this amazing prayer. So here's what I want you to do for homework. I want you to guys to listen and read this over and over and over again all week. Listen to what Jesus is saying to the Father on your behalf, because that's what this prayer is about. He's leaving. He, he has done the work, and he says this prayer out, li- out loud for his disciples to hear as he is speaking to the Father so that they are left with these truths and how he prays. When he prays, he prays instantly and immediately. To whom he prays, he prays to the Father. What does he pray? He prays that God would be glorified. How does he pray? He prays four things. Prayer. Praise and exaltation of God. Supplication. Prayers on, prayers on behalf of others. Petition. Prayers of requests for others and yourself. And what's the last one? Thanksgiving. Give God glory and thank, be thankful for He alone is God. The four, four components of prayer all follows the model of prayer, which Jesus is doing right here. Yeah, I said cheer. Right cheer. All right? So, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your faithfulness and goodness. Thank you for this amazing prayer. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us in all truth, that we would understand and know your will, that the full counsel of your word is proclaimed, that we would, that we would uh, be clear in understanding not only your word, but who you are, confident and sure of our God and our Savior. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.